Okay, if everybody uh, could turn in your Bibles, please, to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. We are continuing to look at this subject of the Feast of Israel. And some of you are wondering, uh, because uh, up to now, uh, we've only covered uh, the first four festivals. And um, we've had, um, let me think now, how many? Five sessions? Is that something like that? Five sessions to cover four festivals, and we only have two sessions left, and we've got three more festivals to cover. And you're wondering how we're going to do that. Well, I'm going to make it even more difficult because I'm going to get sidetracked in this session a little bit and uh, kind of leave the final three feasts for tonight. And uh, my wife always says I work better under pressure, so I'm going to put myself under pressure tonight to cover the final three festivals. But I think you'll understand why. Uh, this little bit of a sidetrack, but just want to do uh, some short readings and then kind of do a little bit of a review of where we're up to in our study. So again, Leviticus 23, verse 15 through 17, to begin with, Leviticus 23, 15 through 17, and then we want to read from verse 22, and then I want to read from the New Testament. So first of all, uh, Leviticus 23, 15 And you shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a new meal offering unto the Lord. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves of two tenth deals. They shall be of fine flour, they shall be bacon with leaven. Uh, they are the first fruits unto the Lord. And then uh, verse 22, please, of Leviticus 23. It says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not make clean riddance of the corners of thy field. When thou reapest, neither shalt thou gather any gleaning of thy harvest. Thou shalt leave them to the poor and to the stranger. I am the Lord your God. And then, please, uh, John's Gospel, chapter 7. John, chapter 7, and verse 37 through 39. John 7, 37 through 39. John's Gospel, a very interesting study to, uh, to do in terms of the festivals, because a lot of the miracles and the dialogues that the Lord Jesus had uh, were held at the festivals. Actually, this one in John 7:37, uh, we believe, was the Feast of Tabernacles. But I want you to notice what he says. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, This spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, God will bless the reading of his precious word to us this morning. So, just to kind of review. As we look at these festivals, we've said that uh, it was Israel's calendar. And these were there, if you like, public holidays, just like you uh, have Memorial Day and the 4th of July and Labor Day, and I forget what else you do, but you got these specific public holidays. Well, the nation of Israel, God had given the calendar for them. In fact, uh, Israel are the only nation that God actually gave them their calendar. Fourth of July is not God-given, by the way. Celebrating rebellion against a, uh, a legitimate authority. Of course, I'm an Englishman, so I can say that. It's hardly God-given. But anyway, uh, clearly, these holidays were given by God. And they were some of the festivals, we said, were memorial. They were remembering their deliverance from Egypt, uh, remembering their wandering through the wilderness and God's provision for them and, and flight in haste, all these kind of things. Some of them were memorial. Some of them... Um, were harvest festivals, uh, uh, celebrating the the barley harvest, the wheat harvest, and then the final festival is the corn and wine harvest. So some of them were harvest festivals. But all of them are prophetic. They're all looking forward to something better. Uh, They're, uh, they're if you like, types and shadows 
but the fullness, the substance of them is Christ. And so we saw, for instance, that the Passover is really a picture of the Lord Jesus. And the New Testament uh, applies that to him. It says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Uh, We were in bondage to sin. Uh, We were under a cruel taskmaster like Pharaoh. Ours was Satan. We were were under the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And, And we were delivered when we came to trust in the death and shed blood and the applied blood of the Passover lamb to our personal story. And that was how our life began spiritually when we came to know Christ, our Passover was sacrificed for us. And can I just say this, that if you don't know Christ, as your Passover. If he has never, you've never made him your personal savior, in a sense, this study on the feast is not going to make any sense to you uh, because you don't have the author living within you, so you no way you're going to understand this. And so you really got to start with Christ and making him your personal savior, realizing that he died for you on Calvary, that you need to apply his death and his blood to your life uh, and, and to start your journey if you like, delivered from the old life and on your way to the new life, the new land that God has promised us. And so this is the Passover. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, uh, comes from the, this is the 14th day of the first month is Passover, 15th uh, day to the 21st day of the month was what we call the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's, it's a kind of twofold picture of the Christian life. Christ our sanctification. On the one hand, after they had applied the blood and had been sheltered, uh, as it were, and protected from judgment through the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you, God says. Um, then they, would, they fed on the Lamb that night. They, they actually feasted on the Lamb. And and as a newborn believer, we feast on our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just thrilled with the person that loved us and gave himself for us. And and we want to learn of him and study about him and, as it were, feed on him. And also, at the same time, they were not allowed to have any leavened bread. Uh, They were to remove leaven from their houses. And leaven, in the Bible, is a picture of sin in its permeating character, evil in its permeating character, how evil always spreads, it affects everything, it affects everyone. And so we need to be serious about dealing with sin. The interesting thing is that, uh, let's be honest, if you get the choice of having leavened bread or unleavened bread, which would you go for? (laughs) Yeah, Obviously, leavened bread looks better, doesn't it? Now the interesting thing is, actually it's not any healthier for you and there's not any more sustenance in it because all the leaven does is puff it up and fill it with hot air. That's what it does. That's that chemical reaction and it just fills it up with, with air. So in a sense it doesn't satisfy you anymore and of course the things of the world may look attractive but we know this, right? They can never satisfy We sing a song, now none but Christ can satisfy, none other name but He. And that's true, this stuff can't satisfy you. It it appeals, obviously, and of course there's nothing more appealing than than a fresh loaf coming out of the oven, right? I mean, it's pretty appealing. Sin is pretty appealing, right? But on the other hand, um, uh, Christ is what is to be our sustenance. And so we're to deal with sin, remove sin from the life, be serious about it, and then well, we saw that the third festival was first fruits, and we saw from again from 1 Corinthians 15 that it's a picture, in a sense, uh, this first harvest in the land of barley harvest. Uh, of course, in order to have their first crop, they had to put the corn of wheat in the ground, so to speak, and it had to die, and then it would bring forth much fruit, and they would pick the, the best of the crop. They would pick it out on the Friday. They would bind it. They would cut it down. They would hide it somewhere secretly. And then on the morning after the Sabbath, they would take it and wave it before the Lord. A beautiful picture of Christ in resurrection. And Christ is the first fruits of them that slept, the Bible tells us, in 1 Corinthians 15. And then we saw the final uh, festival in this first grouping. They're they're grouped together four uh, spring time festivals, three 
festivals that would come in the fall or the autumn of the year. And so the fourth festival is the 50 days after first fruits uh, is what we call Pentecost. And on that day, a new offering was presented before the Lord, a new meal offering. Uh, It was two loaves baked with leaven. Uh, these two loaves uh, were considered to be one offering. And the idea was this, that on the day of Pentecost, God was going to introduce something new. And this something new was, was the bringing together of two previously divided peoples, Jews and Gentiles, in one new man, right? Two separate loaves, but one offering. God is going to bring together Jew and Gentile in one new man, and he's introducing something new. And although there's leaven there uh, in the meal offering, like the first meal offering in Leviticus chapter 2, that it can't have any leaven in it whatsoever. Whereas this, this new meal offering in Leviticus 23 is baked with leaven. The first one is a picture of Christ's humanity, Right, And there's no sin in him whatsoever. The second one is the body of Christ that is being pictured. And is there sin in the church, which is his body? Yes, there is. is it, it, now, now, when you bake uh, bread with leaven in it, you know, it doesn't rise anymore. The rising takes place actually before you bake it. It actually arrests the, the process of leavening somewhat when you bake it. And so the, the, there's still sin in the church, but it's not as rampant as it was before uh, we came to know Christ, you see. So, so we're thankful for that, right? We, uh, Christians are not sinless, but they should sin less, if you get that distinction. We're not sinless, but we ought to sin less, because the, the thing that God has done uh, in the church through the work of the Lord Jesus is arresting that sin in our lives. So we've got Pentecost, and then you have this gap, uh, this long gap, in a sense, uh, of festivals. And of course, you recognize Israel can't be on holiday all the time. Somebody's got to get some work done, right? Uh, wouldn't you like you, know, you probably wouldn't like it if you had public holidays all the time, because you know, what makes it special is that it is a break from the regular routine. So these people can't be on holiday all the time. They'd never get anything done. So basically, they have four festivals that are gathered together at one time in the spring and three that are gathered together at one time in the fall of the year. And in between, there's a long gap. And so we get that, and we read that in verse 22, that after Pentecost and before the next festival trumpets, there's a gap. And in that gap, what are they supposed to be doing? They're an agricultural people... And after Pentecost and before trumpets, they're meant to bring in the harvest. You notice it in verse 22? It it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land. Now, to me, that's a very beautiful picture of where we're at. We're living after Pentecost, and we're living before the trumpet sounds. Would that be true? And in between Pentecost and the blowing of the trumpet, what are we doing? We're supposed to be bringing in the harvest, aren't we? And so we're now living in this, this gap between the fulfillment of the first festivals and the fulfillment prophetically of the next set of festivals. And to me, that's a, a beautiful picture. It helps us know where we're, we're at and what we're supposed to be doing. Right? This is where we are. We're after Pentecost. We're before trumpets. We're meant to be bringing the harvest in. I find that very helpful. It's very clear. And of course, there's a lot of scripture in the New Testament that emphasizes the unique time that we're in right now. Let's just look at a few of them. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 4, for instance. John, chapter 4, verse 35, uh, where, again, prophetically, the Lord Jesus tells us what we're going to be doing after the giving of the Spirit Uh, during this uh, post-Pentecostal era prior to the trumpets. It says in verse 35, Say ye not, there are yet four months, and then comes harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And what the Lord would want from us today is to do that. 
to, to literally lift up our eyes. You see, I think it's a beautiful picture is this because you know what? When we get busy with life, it's kind of like our heads are down and we're so focused on what we're doing that we forget that there's a lost world out there. And the Lord, the Lord says to us now, just pause. Stop. Lift up your eyes. Look around you. The harvest is white Ready to har- Are we ready to reap the harvest, you see? That's what we're supposed to be doing after Pentecost, before trumpets, is bringing in the harvest. And so he says, lift your eyes up. Look at uh, Matthew 9. Again, another emphasis on this uh, day of harvest. Uh, Matthew 9, verse 36 through 38. Matthew chapter 9. Verse 36, it says, And when he saw the multitude, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Tragic, isn't it? There are multitudes out there, and they can't with conviction say today, The Lord, my shepherd. They don't know that. They don't know him as my shepherd. And, and they don't have a shepherd. They're, they're, they're going through the same struggles that you and I are. They're going through loss of employment, through cancer, through difficulties, and there's no shepherd for their souls. And the Lord Jesus says, look with compassion. See them the way they are. Get a look at these people. And he was moved with compassion. And I asked myself, Lord, why is it that I lack compassion? Lord, would you give me your compassion for this world, that I could see them the way you see them? And then he says this, when you've done this, he says, Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I attend many, many prayer meetings and we take prayer requests and we write them on the screen, but we always seem to forget the Lord Jesus has given us a prayer request. His is never on there. It's like we never ask Him, what's your prayer request? He's told us what it is. He says, I want you to pray to the Lord of the harvest that He would send... You know why we don't like praying that prayer? Because we're scared that He might say, tap on our shoulder and say, yeah, I want you to be the answer to that prayer. <laughs> I want you to be a reaper in the whitened harvest, you see. And we get nervous about that. But that's the idea we should be praying that, Lord, send out laborers. And then just one uh, final verse, and it's kind of on this theme. And then we want to go with our sidetrack for a little while. Jeremiah uh, chapter 8 and verse 20. Jeremiah chapter 8 verse 20 and I think it's a very sad verse in the, the prophecy of Jeremiah. He speaks of a time where people are going to say this, the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. See, the day of grace is going to come to an end. Today is still the day of grace. Isn't that good? Today, if you're not saved, you can get saved. There's an opportunity. The gospel is being presented. There's an opportunity for you to embrace Christ as your Passover that was sacrificed for, for you. But, but don't presume on the grace of God because there's a day coming when it will be a day too late. We spoke at the soccer about the days of Noah. And while ever Noah was a preacher of righteousness, while ever he's building this boat, there's a door open. But the day came when the door was shut. And then the judgment came. And there were people, I'm sure, clamoring and banging on that door and saying, let me in, let me in, but it was too late. The door of opportunity had been, don't let the door of opportunity shut on you. I'm not presuming just because you're here, you're saved. That would be a complete nonsense. There may be somebody here who you've never, ever gone through the door of opportunity. You know what the Lord Jesus says? I am the door. By me, if anyone enters in, he shall be saved. And we need to embrace that opportunity because we don't want it to come from your lips that the harvest is past, the summer is ended, and I'm not saved. What a tragedy that would be, wouldn't it? 
So, what's this sidetrack all about? Well, I want to go back to Pentecost because uh, we, we kind of hinted at this the other night that one of the things that I feel is very critical about the day of Pentecost was God was doing something new. Um, and the something new that he was doing was the, the church bringing in the church. I will build my church. And the, ch- the beginning of the church is there on the day of Pentecost. And one of the things that we're told is to happen on the day of Pentecost uh, is the giving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Lord Jesus had told them that not many days hence they should tarry in Jerusalem and that there would be the promise of the Father would be given. And we read that passage in John 7. And, and I don't know, for, for somehow for in my own life, in recent times, I have been thinking a lot about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I've been speaking a lot about it, the neglected person of the Godhead. I, I feel that we're so scared of Pentecostalism and charismatic teaching that we've, we've, the pendulum has almost swung to the other extreme that we're actually scared of the Spirit of God. And, and, and I've been looking at Scripture again and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not advocating that we speak and do anything like that. Don't get nervous. I'm not going to advocate we swing from the chandeliers or any of this kind of stuff. What I am saying is this. Can I ask you the question, could you honestly say that you have paid proper attention to the indwelling heavenly guest that lives in your life? See, uh, he's, uh, I've been saved uh, 16th of June, 1981, so that's coming on 33 years. And uh, when I was a new Christian, people in our church, some of them went off in, in England and, and, and they started speaking gobbledygooch and, and, uh, and they left and all the rest of it. But they came back for my wife and I because we were the youngest converts and they would take us along to these meetings and, and people were falling all over the place and, and it was kind of scary. The hair was standing up on the back of my neck and I was petrified. I said to my wife, I don't understand all this stuff, but I know this much. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. I remember reading that and I said, we're out of here. But in leaving that, I believe I, for years, had a bias against the Holy Spirit. For the last 30 years, most of the teaching in our assemblies has been what we don't believe about the Holy Spirit. Is that, would that be true? That's what we emphasize. Well, what do, you, what do you believe about the Holy Spirit? And I read John 7, and the Lord Jesus says, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And I think, yeah, I came to drink. 1981, I was thirsty. The world wasn't satisfying me. I was just a miserable person. And I came in my thirst to the Lord Jesus, and I drank. Oh, I'm so glad I did. He that believes on me, he says, Out of his belly, it says, will flow, and here's the word, rivers. And I ask myself, has that been my testimony? Has there been refreshment coming out from me in such a degree that it's refreshing people everywhere? Or has it been a trickle at best? It's a good question, isn't it, to ask? And you see, I'm asking this question because I think that we have overreacted And uh, we're scared of the Holy Spirit. Let me just read some quotes that I came across recently. It says, One of the most subtle tactics adopted by the enemy to paralyze the church has been to make Christians afraid of the Holy Spirit. He's driven groups of earnest believers to adopt extreme positions on the right hand and the left. And he laughs as he sees neither group in complete enjoyment of the power and the fullness that the Holy Spirit delights to give. He said, it's a tragedy that the doctrine which is intended to produce the unity of the Spirit becomes the fruitful source of disunity. And there's a sense, isn't there, that we're a little bit nervous about the Spirit of God. But we, we talk about New Testament principles. Can I say this to you? That I, I believe in New Testament principles and came into the uh, gatherings like this through studying the scriptures and coming to convictions about these things when I didn't belong. Uh, I, was, I was in a different group, but I saw these principles and came in by conviction. But I would say this, that what I've observed since 1989 in coming into fellowship is often we have New Testament principles, but we lack New Testament power. And what I would say is, New Testament principles without New Testament power 
can become dull and cold and lifeless. It really can. And we need New Testament principles, but we need New Testament power. In the Acts of the Apostles, 28 chapters, the person of the Holy Spirit is mentioned 50 times. Do you think that's incidental? Many believe a better title would be the Acts of the, of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. And I think that's a good way of looking at it, right? And by the way, you see, what we say is, oh, well, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit will never speak of Himself. He'll only speak of Christ. And I say, well, yeah, that's true. He doesn't speak of Himself. But you know what? He speaks for Himself. And all the way through the Acts, you get statements like this. The Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work where I have called them. And you get the Holy Spirit giving direction, stopping people going here, encouraging them to go here. And, and He has precedence in the book of Acts. He's the one that's giving the direction and the leadership. Are we listening? We're supposed to be New Testament epistles led by the Spirit. Do we know what that means? Right? We're supposed to be. Do we understand those things? Now, look at Acts 6 for a minute. I want you just to see this. Because one of the mistakes we make, in fact, let's just let's go back, first of all, to Acts uh, 4 to begin with. Acts 4. Uh, and then we'll go to Acts 6. Acts 4. And again, I'm thinking about this idea that we, we tend to have this notion that because Pentecost um, was, in a sense, the type of Pentecost was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So we say, well, we're never looking for another Pentecost. And that's right. There's never going to be another Calvary, in a sense. That was once for all. There'll never be another Pentecost. But the interesting thing is, on the day of Pentecost, the men that were there and the women in that upper room were filled with the Holy Spirit. They experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And when we get to Acts chapter 4, we find the very same people are now once again gathered in another room and they've been threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus. And this is no idle threat. These people have already crucified the Lord Jesus, and when they say, don't preach in his name, there's going to be trouble, that's, that's a kind of serious threat. You take that seriously. But what they do in verse 29 of Acts 4 is that they pray. <clears throat> and it says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant to thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. They don't say, Lord, remove the persecution. They don't say anything about that. They say, we know we've been commanded to preach in the name of Jesus and we're asking for boldness to do it. And so, <clears throat> look at verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. So post-Pentecost, right? Acts 2 is Pentecost. Now this is Acts 4. There's a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. You all agree with that, right? Acts 4 comes after Acts 2. Do you get that? Right? You don't have to be a brilliant mathematician to get that. And there's a new filling. And you'll see this throughout the Acts of the Apostles. Look at Acts 6. And I find this very fascinating. Acts 6 uh, there's a potential division in the church now over the, the widows. There were a lot of widows, and some of them were uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews, and some were Greek-speaking Jews, and the Greek-speaking Jews felt like the Hebrew-speaking Jewish widows were getting a better deal than them. And they began to murmur and complain, and this beautiful, happy fellowship is about to be torn apart by division. And so the apostles have got to deal with this. How are we going to deal with this? And they recognize what we need to do is we need to get some people who oversee the, the kind of uh, distribution of funds, the serving of tables, the helping of, these, uh, of giving to these widows so the complaint is ended. And this is verse 3 now. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Interesting, isn't it? The, 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 there must be a way that you can tell if somebody is filled with the Holy Spirit. If that is one of the criteria that was set out for these seven men. By the way, it's for relatively mundane tasks, right? The distribution of supplies and food to the widows. But I wish every assembly would take this seriously. 
You know, often we think, oh, a deacon, you know, anybody can do that kind of work, right? We tend to, you know, menial tasks. No, even for menial tasks, we need men who are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Well, what about for spiritual tasks, tasks of a more spiritual nature? What kind of men do we need for that? But obviously, if they're sent out to pick these seven men, then there must be a way you can tell if somebody's full of the Holy Spirit. Right? When you th- I mean, is my logic making sense to you? You kind of, I don't know what's wrong this morning. Come on, wake up here. Maybe you're nervous. I don't know what it is. Find these men. Wouldn't it be good if we said here, find seven men full of the Holy Ghost? Who would you pick? Where would you begin to look? How would you know what that looks like? Well, they didn't have a problem. Look at verse 5. The same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Ghost. Here's exhibit A. Stephen, it's obvious he is, right? (laughs) He's full of faith in the Holy Ghost. So, we're clearly seeing um, that there, there is this discernible picture of what somebody looks like that's filled with the Holy Spirit because they obviously were able to pick someone. Now, look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, where in the epistles, you've got this interesting description. Ephesians five seventeen. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. That's a great thing, isn't it? We want to be wise. We want to know what the will of the Lord is. And, of course, that's the biggest question I get asked by young people is, how do you discern what the will of God is? And my answer usually is this. The will of God in the Bible is usually moral. It's not where you are, but what you are that matters. Because you can be in Africa, and if you're not what you ought to be, you'll be a a, a disaster, Right? So it's not about where you are, it's what you are that matters. And so when you think of the will of God, this is the will of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, even your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. God's will is that we live holy lives and we're not involved in sexual immorality, right? That's God's will. In everything give thanks, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. God's will for your life is you to be a a, a holy person and a thankful person. See, God's will for you is what you are, not where you are. Because if you're what you ought to be, wherever you go, you'll be a blessing. And if we had more emphasis on what we are rather than where we are, boy, what a difference that would make. And so here he says, understand what the will of the Lord is. And what, he's, and what he says is this. Here's what the will of the Lord is. Be not drunk with wine, where is in excess. It's not God's will for you to ever get drunk. I don't care who you are. It's not God's will for you to get drunk. Secondly, it's God's will for you to be filled with the Spirit. And the word being filled with the Spirit there, uh, from the Greek, is this. Be ye continuously being filled with the Spirit. And it's a command. It's God's will for you to be continuously filled with the Spirit. You say, wow, that's interesting. Well, what does that look like? Well, it's interesting. When somebody's drunk with wine, you can tell. You know how I know that? I grew up in an alcoholic home. That's how I know that. I would come home from school at 13 years of age, and I would come home, and within a few minutes, I could tell whether my mother had been drinking or not. I could tell by her speech. Her speech would slur. You see, your speech is affected. I could tell by her walk. She'd, she couldn't walk straight. She'd be staggering this way and that. I could tell by, by her... Uh, she would say things and do things. She would never... Her inhibitions changed. She would say and do things. She would never, ever do sober. I know what it is to see somebody drunk with wine. And you can tell. Just one glance. That's all it takes. By the way, you know the best way to not be drunk with wine is not to drink wine. Folks, I know you can call me a legalist if you I couldn't care less. If you saw what I saw growing up, you'd be scared to death of alcohol. You'd be petrified. It wasn't just my mom, my grandmother was the same. It, Catholic family before divorce was even thought about, my grandfather divorced my grandmother because of alcoholism. The curse of alcoholism has visited my family for two generations and I was the third. And if it hadn't been for the grace of God intervening, I'd have been number three. Oh, I'm so glad that God intervened and broke the cycle. 
But I find Christians all the time, especially those who are not raised in, uh, in unsaved backgrounds, raised in Christian homes, and they almost feel like they're missing out on something. And they've got to have this stuff. And I want to tell you, you don't need it. Stay away from it. it. Be scared of it. I'm petrified. Petrified of it. Because of what I've seen. So be not drunk. It's, it's the will of God. Be not drunk with wine. <coughs> Wherein is excess. But, in contrast to that, be controlled by another spirit. See, it's interesting. We you know what they call liquor? They call it spirits. <laughs> is that interesting? Because it controls people, controls their actions. You know, why do you think that so many marriages break up over Christmas? You know why? Because the office party, people go out and they drink. And, and I witnessed it. My immediate boss, when I was working, a very attractive young lady, she went through three husbands in five years. Every time, it was the office Christmas party and another affair and another broken marriage. I saw it with my own eyes. The inhibitions go out of the window. You do things you'd never do. They call it Dutch courage, you see. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, again, can I say this? That if you're filled with the Spirit, you can tell too. It's going to affect your speech. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. A person who's filled with the Spirit of God is going to have a song. The song of Zion. Beautiful song. Isn't that what Psalm 40 says? That he, that he brought me up out of the miry clay, out of the pit, and he put my feet on a rock, and he, and, and he put a new song in my heart, even praise to our God. And one of the evidences of a man filled with the Spirit is that he's got a song. Isn't it wonderful to wake up in the morning with a song? Not the songs of the world, but a song of Zion. Christ liveth in me. That's one of my favorites. I wake up with that one quite often. Oh, what a salvation this that Christ liveth in me. Isn't that tremendous to start the day with a song? The Spirit of God will do that for you. Not only that, it says, verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A man who's filled with the Spirit will be a thankful person. You see, in the flesh, you're always complaining. You know, maybe it's the weather, maybe it's the government, maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but, but in the flesh, it's belly aching and complaining, isn't it? Remember the children of Israel in the wilderness? What do, you, what do they make you think of? Always complaining. But in the spirit, there's a heart that's filled with thankfulness. And then, <clears throat> verse 21, third evidence, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. There's a willingness to submit to authority for a person that's filled with the Spirit. In the flesh, you know what you're going to say? Who does he think he is to tell me what to do with my life? Right? There's that kind of that rebellious attitude. Who, who do they think they are, these elders, that they would even suggest this? Right? That's the heart of the rebel, isn't it? That's a man in the flesh. Spiritual man, a man who's filled with the Spirit, will be willing to submit. Not just the oversight, to one another. When somebody comes and talks to you about something, you'll be able to receive it. And submit one another in the fear of God. Now look at Colossians 3, verse 16. And I want you to notice, slightly difference here. Difference here. There's the same symptoms, if you like, or, or effects, but a different cause. So 16 of Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. So again, we've got the same effects. You've got this teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. So there's the song. There's the thankfulness, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. And then you've got submission. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as, as fit in the Lord. So you've got the same effects, but a different cause. One is, be filled with the Spirit. The other is, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And although they're, they're different, they're not really different. Because we believe, I hope you believe, that the word of God is given by 
the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? Holy men of God, Peter says, spake as they were born along, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, so in a sense, the very breath of God the Spirit has been breathed into this scripture. And as I let that word dwell in me richly. Now, there's the challenge. That's the challenge, you see. Our own circles, I'll tell you, we have a problem with this. We, we are great on information, but we're weak on application. Actually doing something with what we know, right? We have notebooks filled. We have heads filled, but you know, knowledge puffs up. But what's needed is the practical application of the truth you hear to your life. So when you let the Word of Christ dwell, it means be at home in you richly. You welcome it as a guest. As the Word of God is presented, you say, yes, I want that to be part of me. I'm going to take it in. I'm going to ingest it. It's going to become part of my life and character. I'm going to obey its principles and precepts. And as to the extent that we allow the Word of God to direct and affect our lives to the extent that we're under the control of the author of the book, the Spirit of God. Now, here's an interesting thing. When it comes to this idea of fullness of the Spirit, I think we're all agreed, that when we talk about sanctification, this being made holy, most of the time what we would say is, well, actually, it's a process. It's a process. So, we just talked about the Word of God. As God brings something to your attention and you apply it, and you obey it, then that becomes, you become under the control of the Spirit of God in that part of your life. And Now, let's just say this right at the beginning. Every person in this room that's a Christian, when you got saved, you got all of the Holy Spirit, because He's a person. He's not a fluid. He's not an it. He is a divine person. And you either have Him, or you don't have Him. So every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, all of Him. But the difference is this. You have all of Him, but does He have all of you? That's the difference. Are there areas in your life where the Holy Spirit is not allowed? That's me. That's mine. I have a friend. He's serving a 10-year prison sentence. He was an elder in my assembly. And he would tell you, if he was here today, he would tell you this. He said there were areas of his life that were kept secret, but they were kept for him, and he wouldn't allow God in there. And it was those secret things that got him into trouble. There were areas where he wasn't under the Spirit's control, where he allowed self to dominate. We're, either, we're filled with something. We're either filled with the Spirit or filled with anger or filled with rage or filled with lust. It can't be a vacuum. You're going to be filled with something. What's filling you? Is it the Spirit of God? Or is it anger? Is it, is it lust? Is it all those? And he had areas that it would just weren't yielded. See, the Lord Jesus, it says concerning him that he was filled with the Spirit above measure. You know why? There was no more yielded life than his life. Was there? He was fully yielded, so he was filled beyond measure. So could I say this, that we can either progressively yield our areas of our lives to the control of the Holy Spirit, so we can do what we call progressive sanctification, but there are some individuals who have completely surrendered, completely surrendered their will, and we see the fullness and power in their lives. And I'm going to talk about some of the people, men like D.L. Moody. You've heard of him, right? Not charismatic. But D.L. Moody felt a powerlessness in his ministry. It really bothered him. And he cried out to God day after day, God, I want to be surrendered to you and enjoy the fullness of your Holy Spirit so that I can be a useful instrument. I want to be fully available to you. And one day he's walking down New York City and he had an encounter with the living God. He said it was like God came and just enveloped him with his love in such a way he'd never known before. He went into a hotel room, he locked the door, it was a holy moment, and he said God's love was so present in that room that he actually had to ask God to stay his hand because he thought God was going to 
consume him. And he said, I went back to preaching. I preached the same messages that I always preached. But there was a new power. People were getting saved without even me asking them to come forward. They were just getting out of their seats and walking to the front. And I could give you account after account after account of men like that who were not charismatic in any way, who had surrendered completely their will to the will of the Spirit of God. And they were filled with power from on high. See, I believe that this New Testament would emphasize and teach the importance of fullness. Even Paul's prayers, he never prays about, Lord, would you give them a portion of your wisdom? What does he say? He says, Ephesians 3.19, he prays that the saints there would be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that a great prayer? There's nothing measly about that, is there? All the fullness... What would it be like if we were all filled with all the fullness of God in this assembly? You'd hardly recognize it, would you? He prays that they be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Not just have a few evidence of fruit, but be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Isn't that wonderful? That we would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And Paul is all about fullness. Are we all about fullness? Or are we so scared of the Holy Spirit we dare even pray these kind of things? Here's an account of a man. And he'd been, same thing, preaching and just felt the powerlessness. I feel the powerlessness of the day in which we're living in, don't you? Lots of work with very little results. Is the reason we have lots of work and little results that we're ignoring the source of divine power? Is it that we have embraced New Testament principles but because of charismatic error we've allowed the pendulum to swing to the other extreme and, and we've forgotten the, inter, the, the importance of New Testament principles carried out in New Testament power. So here's a man, he says, when I, it came, I couldn't explain what had happened but I was aware of things unspeakable and full of glory. Some results were immediate There came into my soul a deep peace, a thrilling joy, a new sense of power. My mind was quickened. I felt I had received a new faculty of understanding. Every power was vitalized. Bodily powers were quickened. There was a new sense of spring and vitality. New power of endurance and a strong man's exhilaration in big things. Things began to happen. What we had failed to do by strenuous endeavor came to pass without labor. It was as if when the Lord Jesus stepped in the boat, that with all their rowing, they had made no headway, and immediately He stood in the ship, they were at the shore. Isn't that amazing? He's not charismatic. Not Pentecostal. No. But He had the experience of the fullness of the Spirit of God. And God used Him mightily. How's your life? You feel the bankruptcy? Is it that we've rejected the source of power? I said we're indwelt by this this person. For me, 33 years. I spend my life staying in people's homes. Sometimes I'm there for a while, you know, maybe a week, maybe longer. Can you imagine being in somebody's house for a whole week and them ignoring me completely? Now, that doesn't happen. Just the opposite. In fact, people are just wonderfully kind and hostile. But imagine how long that week would be if I was staying in their house and they completely ignored me. How long is 33 years that I have been ignoring the person of the Holy Spirit? It's a long time, isn't it? We're supposed to enjoy the communion of the Holy Ghost. We're supposed to be led of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And, and I have to say, and maybe I'm the only one in this room, but I think that I overreacted to charismatic error and I embraced error myself. The error of a powerless, fruitless Christianity 
that emphasized ritual without divine power. Now, I don't want to abandon New Testament principles. I have no intention of them. I love these things. But I have come to realize the need of divine power. I would say this, that since these things have been gripping my heart, my wife and I have had more joy in our marriage and in our life than we've ever had before. Because the source of joy is now a welcome guest in our lives. See, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, you know the rest. We're supposed to love one another. How do we do that? Romans 5 says, The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. How? By the Holy Ghost that was given unto us. I can't love you in my own strength. It's not going to work. But I can love you in the power of the Spirit of God. So, I'm challenging us all to revisit the person and the work of this divine person that lives within you. If I'd had more time, I'd like to have spoken about grieving him and quenching it. Isn't it amazing that a human being, a sinner of the Gentiles, can actually grieve a divine person? I can grieve the Spirit of God. So can you. Isn't that amazing? Staggering. That I can quench him. Maybe today he's speaking to your heart. Don't quench the Spirit of God. Don't pour cold water in what God is saying to you today. We want to respond to what the Spirit of God is saying. Our time is gone. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that we might embrace the fullness that you intended us to have in the person of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for neglecting, for ignoring, for grieving, for quenching this blessed person. Would you again afresh fill us with this blessed person so that we might indeed reap the harvest before the trumpet sounds that we might labor and it might not be fruitless labor but our labor would be filled with fruit the fruits of righteousness and we'll be so quick to give thee the glory because God I just want to tell you we can't do this in our own strength we've tried and it doesn't work we need power from on high we need thy Holy Spirit to work afresh amongst your people would you work amongst us in a new way would you thrill us afresh with all that you've done through the work of the Lord Jesus in giving us this indwelling heavenly guest and we'll give you the glory in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Amen. Amen